Hello and welcome to this edition of Conversations from the NF Network. In this episode, I speak to adult adoptee Stephen Rowley. He was adopted in the 1940s in the USA and he shares some of his journey to rediscovering his birth family. He also is a psychotherapist and he unpacks aspects of his internal journey and considers some philosophical questions in terms of identity as well. As always, if you've experience of adoption, fostering or special guardianship from any perspective, personal or professional, and would like to share that on the podcast, please do get in touch through the Facebook page, the app formerly known as Twitter, or you can email us at anfpodcast at gmail.com. Hi, well, I'm Stephen Rowley, and so happy to be here with you today, Al. I'm a, currently I have a psychotherapist. I live in Bainbridge Island, Washington, which is across Puget Sound from Seattle, Washington, in the Northwest part of the United States. Uh, prior to my, I went back to school in my late 60s to become a psychotherapist, which was a dream I had for a long time. And prior to that, I'd been a, an educator, a teacher, a principal, a school district superintendent, and I've been a num- number of different college faculty. So I had another, I've had several other um, professions before getting this. And now I've just, I've stumbled into being an author, which has been a great, a, a real, a real treat. Uh, I began writing my book, uh, The Lost Coin, A Memoir of Adoption and Destiny, uh, not quite two years ago. And the impetus for that uh, was the uh, getting a 23andMe notification from somebody who was related to me and thought I was their cousin. Uh, but I was startled because this was a first cousin notification. I've never had one. I've been belonged to them for a long time. So my antenna were up and with a couple rapid uh, exchange of emails i realized that his we discovered that uh number one that uh his mother was ultimately my, one of my four half sisters and therefore their birth father their father was my birth father which had been uh you know uh, i almost had given up on thinking i would ever find the, the trail had gone cold uh, in terms of the uh, uh searching for him but once I had that, it seemed that the journey had been completed. I, I began when I was 13 year old, years old to be very curious about my adoption. My mother didn't take very kindly to my curiosity and uh, roundly scolded me for, for that, and that, which set me in motion, determined in my lifetime I would track down my birth parents. Um, so with that discovery, and, and I had enough information about my birth father, there was no question that I was uh, his, uh, you know, that he was my birth father. And then there's an exchange of pictures and so forth. And those pictures of mine at age 19 were, were identical practically. But the irony was that I, the pictures I had from my birth mother, who I uh, met and I'll talk about in a minute, when I was uh, 40, uh, her, I also looked like her. So I really am quite a, quite a marvelous combination between the two when they, were, when they were young. Their lives diverged. It was no doubt an affair. Um, and uh, her parent, I think her father, probably drove her to a place called the Willows Maternity Sanitarium in Kansas City, Missouri, which is the center of the United States. And it was at that time in the 1950s was considered the hub of adoption in this country for, for several decades. And the Willows was uh, the most prominent of those places, almost like a, like a girl's finishing school. You come there for a couple of months in addition to having your child. When you were taught table manners and all matter, you know, how to dress and all kinds right. of other stuff. So, but I was only there for 10 days and then I was, I was taken to the state of Iowa uh, and uh, which is not too far away. And um, I was in a boarding home, a boarding fit with a board, a, a, uh, uh, say a boarding home for four months where theoretically I was uh, being observed. And then a couple months after that, 
when I was six months old, I was adopted by my parents. That, that issue of what was happening in those four months as a, from a child development point of view is a big deal because clearly you're, you're not probably not getting bonded to the mother. But the, and I'll come back to the, how they structured the book. But the, one of the main things about uh, the, the after day 10, when my birth mother and I departed each other, uh, that separation of mother and child, I, which I liken to a term we use in psychotherapy called the, prim, the, uh, the, the primal wound, the yep. wound of separation, the tra traumatic wound. And I, it's my belief, whether it's through this means or other kinds of early childhood adoption, we carry uh, that wound inside of us, that psychic wound. And um, that's what I think makes us most in common. So let me back up a little and uh, tell you about uh, uh, how the, the ways in which I wrote this book. Um, you can read the book as a detective story. Well, number one, how I, from age 13 and in the days before the internet uh, and Google, that I began a slow process of writing letters the old-fashioned way, when I had a mailbox when I was in college and began pestering the people at the adoption agency and got a little information from them, but generally it was, I got a pat on the head and said, have a nice day, go, you know, don't bother with this anymore, get about your life, and that, that did nothing but infuriate me. So I continued that correspondence, and bit by bit I got some information about, uh, about my birth, both birth parents, absent their names, um, but then uh, when I was about 30 years old, I, I, uh, another director sent me the actual name and address of my birth mother. And I went back to her hometown uh, in Iowa and um, went to the town library, found her high school picture. And from there, I began to um, write letters to people with the last name in that county. And eventually, I was living in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area at the time. I, was, I just graduated from Stanford. Uh, that uh, I finally got a name and an address, and so I wrote her, and um, and then uh, uh, then co then consequently, I eventually did get to meet her. She'd come out of a halfway house uh, for women suffering from drug and alcohol abuse. But so, despite that, and despite the the uh, the the welcome I got from her, that began that was an enormous reunion. And seen as though that was the one of the penultimate moments of my life. What, what made me curious is when my half-sister, who I had just met a few hours but before, her other, one of her daughters, when we came to her door in a pretty dingy uh, uh, tenement area, uh, she opened the door a crack and said, who, who gave you the right to come look me up? I didn't ask you to come here. So it was a little bit of a, uh, a, little bit of a time to take a deep breath. And, uh, and when I, after I did and we came in, uh, it didn't take too long before I realized how much we were like. She, despite her, her addictions and so forth, had a, num a large number of books in storage, which I came out of an academic background, rang a bell big time. And then she, I noticed that she had a, a poster from the National Gallery on the wall. And I just made light notice of it. And then she launched into a, she said, that's, what, that's a Kandinsky. And then she launched into a, a lecture on Kandinsky's life and his work and where he was at the time when this was made. And it was like mind-blowing because she had been a bag lady before that, pushing you know uh, grocery carts around town. So, so that reunion was was uh, in, a, in a sense the most mind-boggling experience because we really did mm -hmm. open to each other, and I could see, I could feel her mind, I could hear her mind work. I could, I, I, I had the same mentality, the same sense of humor, and uh, and then I think it dawned on us at that moment that you know now after 
uh, 40 years after having been separated for so long, it was equally meaningful to both of us. And I can't tell you, maybe I need not say how meaningful it was to me. It's, but I also, I, I also, and I was going to say, um, in reading it, because you, you, it's a really fascinating book to read. And I confess, I haven't read all of it, but I'm working my way through it. Um, uh, I found it fascinating because you you give these little snippets into the window of you of you as you were growing up, and you're able to sort of set yourself. Uh, on one level, it's really interesting because you grew up at a fascinating time in the world. You know, you grew up right. you know th- through the '60s, late '50s and '60s through the US, right. and. Um, and then I think it's there is a really profound section when you're 13 and you describe sort of yes. 13 year old asking your mum, your mom, yes. sorry, um, some okay. questions, <laughs> some questions in terms of just really innocent, fairly innocuous questions about your birth mum, what she knew, and just this kind of this response that just, I think you, uh, the the phrase that I picked out was um, this vague, persistent feeling of loneliness that kind of enveloped you after that this real clear sense of you're on your own here this is your journey no no one's coming with you right no that was that was a profound moment and and you know it was born out of the my anger at her and i say in the book that i never talked to her about my adoption ever again and we had at the very end of the book there's a very interesting way in which that rupture was repaired i won't go into that today but um but yeah, and it wasn't that we didn't talk to each other. We, but there was always just that little edge about something mm. about, you know, I when I did find my birth mother, I didn't tell her, even though I knew she knew I had one of my one of my siblings spilled it to her, and she never brought it up, and I didn't either. So it was a little bit of a grudge. And I say I probably held on to it too long, but that 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 uh, self protection, that that uh, uh, that willing not to have, be exposed any further, uh, is a one of those hallmarks of trauma. So. And I was going to say, the book itself is written on that detective level story, and from that moment at age 13 and on. But then uh, also, what I hope I've done, woven in, uh, hopefully not too uh, 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 crudely, that uh, begin to develop the idea of the inner life, the interior life. And that's, the, and that's to help shed light not only through me, but also for other adoptees that, that we're much more in common in terms of our inner lives than may meet the eye. And I like to think, to me, I don't know anybody else who's done much of that kind of exploration. It's certainly not a research book, and it's not a how-to book. It's just exposing my own life with with a few ideas sprinkled from psychology, but not very many. So those two levels are kind of are woven together, and there's in certain parts of my life where adoption is not that seemingly that important. I had another career to pursue. And other times when it rises right up to the very top, so it's kind of that warp and weave of how that theme uh, kind of wove itself through uh, my life. But the other the other thing, which I, I say in the very beginning of the book, uh, was the fundamental question, who am I? Mm-hmm. And that becomes some more, I don't say this word, but it's, it's as though that's an existential um, mystery that needs solving. And, uh, and as I get close to the end of the book, it doesn't really necessarily resolve itself into a like, Oh, I've discovered who I am. It's, it's maybe the more I knew about my life and had the, the more mature I got over time, that that question became the answer to the question became elusive, more elusive rather than more succinct and, and cogent. So that's uh, and that's why I used the idea of a of a Zen koan. And uh, for those who are not familiar, it's a it's a it's a type of device that uh, certain Buddhist lineages and Buddhist lineages use. 
it's kind of a puzzle of the to the mind. Like, what's the sound of one hand clapping? Is a is a Zen koan. It's it's a popular one. Mine is a the coin lost in the river is found in the river. And it seems like well, of course. I mean, if you lost, you're going to find it there. But the longer you, even in the training for Zen priests, you're given a month to to sit with that koan. What does it really mean? What is it trying to tell to you? And so, at some point, with as it is in, was for me, and I think other certainly in, in Buddhist traditions, um, it's a use. It's a way of, of self-examination. It's a way of watching how your own mind works, or is wants to find solutions, wants to have answers, when in fact those aren't really readily available. Just the way that a mm-hmm. coin lost in a river is not quite where we think that it should be. It's someplace else. And as I say in the book of the the water is murky, uh, as most of our lives often are. We don't know where it went to. It fell into muddy water. Where's the coin? We don't know. Where is my identity? Who am I? So as you see in the book, I've, I've, I went through a lot of iterations. I mean, I'm an educator. Um, yeah. uh, my wife and I adopted our son at age when he was four and a half. Uh, that was a new thing. Uh, so um, that, that kind of curiosity, I think, is partly who I am in terms of my own learning curve trajectory and my different professions and different things that interest me. So um, I, I'd like to think that that multi-layered approach avails itself to in, in memoir form, I think avails itself to a number of people who want to read mm. it at whatever level they choose. As you say too, in, in terms of the history of the United States anyway, I, I was age, I was the day before my 15th birthday when the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan. That was a big deal. You know, I was in eighth grade when uh, when Kennedy was assassinated. It was in sixth grade when the Cuban Missile Crisis happened. And when the Vietnam War was going on, I was in, in protests at the University of Wisconsin. So a lot of those things were, you know, very consonant with, I think, my, my generation. Yeah, I find it fascinating. You've got a really interesting perspective. And I think that your training as sort of maybe that is a question in of itself what led you to become you know you you've had a successful career as an educator you know a full Mm -hmm. career a lot of people would go that's a good life you know that's a good life but what then stepped do you think it was a bit of a chicken and egg was it your experience of adoption that led you into then then starting a new career um that really is it's that's a that's a deeper question and more important question that no one has ever asked me. In fact, I'm not sure I've asked myself in that particular way. But it was true that at the time, uh, within a, within the span of a couple of years, when I approached my mother at age 13, it wasn't long after that that, that I became interested in psychology. Uh, believe it or not, my relatively uh, uh, kind of obscure sort of Midwestern, uh, mid, uh, mid, uh, middle-sized town in the Midwest on the banks of the Mississippi River. I got a hold of Freud, and I, I read a little young, and I read other theologians. I was really interested, and not too long after that, and uh, that I that I was mentored by a guy who we called Mr. G, a, a teacher we had. The book is uh, dedicated to him, and that opened the world to me to not only literature and poetry, but also to uh, to uh, 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 different kinds of philosophy and, and theology. So that blossomed in that in my life early. And those interests stayed there. Now, you know, did was uh, was adoption that would that have happened had I not been adopted? Maybe, just can't say. But that, but yeah. I will say, the, the, the through line to me is the, is is curiosity, which I think in what I do um, as a ther- therapist, if there's one one particular 
quality that I think makes for a good therapist is curiosity. You know, you don't assume you know what's going on with somebody. In fact, I got with a client just yesterday, a, a woman who was in her uh, mid-20s and uh, struggling with an issue with one of her parents for a long time. And we both kind of came to the place where she's going, I don't really know how to go forward. And I go, I, go, I don't really know how you do either. So let's hold that. In fact, the book begins with, in fact, I read this to her. I'll, I'll share it with the audience because it's right at the, uh, the very beginning of the book in the introduction. It's uh, by Rainer and Mariah Rilke. And this is, I think, is the, the reason it's sitting in the, in the, the first quote, other than the poem by uh, uh, William Stafford, which is also quite provocative. It says, be patient with all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms and like books that are now written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers, which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. You would not be able to live them if you had the answers right now. And the point is to live, the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. So this ought not only is a beautifully stated thing about the, the importance of questions, if we just on the technical side of what Carl Jung talked about in terms of the what he calls the tension of the opposites, the things that are seem to be opposite of, or in other words, I have a mother, I have another mother, one I know, one I don't know, who's my mother? You know, you can't really go out and decide how what that answer is. It has to come to you at some day, live into that answer. And so in my case, I think that a resolution by meeting my actual birth mother, but not my mother, my birth mother, I found a part of myself that had basically been not lost, but needed the reaffirmation. Like, oh my God, somebody else is just like me. I had to live into that. I couldn't, I couldn't decide that ahead of time. So I think it's that, um, that, that, uh, um, appropriate sort of, uh, prescient sensibility of, of something beginning to open up in me in my life at that time was, and curiosity was the driver for that. Uh, not always, not every day. But I did keep everything. I kept all my correspondence from the time I was that age. All, you know, I think I, I very little got by me that I didn't put in a file and keep it. And I still, I don't think I had any idea that I'd write about it someday. But of course, now I did. So it's fascinating because you do. It comes through all of your writing, really. This this ability to reflect and to this journey of reflection of trying to make sense of your feelings and you know this experience that even though you don't necessarily know all of what the experience was um but that's that's you're peeling the onion you're yeah. getting more and more yeah. Yeah. um and how much of that this is maybe a bigger question it's not necessarily personal but in terms of how much does um an adoptee's or your experience of reflect some of the natural questions that people have as they move through their life is there a, a parallel in terms of you know, well, I've sometimes I've, I've joked that I haven't taken a survey, so I don't really know the answer. Right, okay. Just, just go my with suspicion, it. My suspicion is that, like many people, including the doctors, um, our culture is not particularly uh, geared to self-reflection and introspection. And particularly within the adoption community, I mean, you may know some people who are adopted, or your parents may be very actively in talking to you as a kid about your adoption. But largely, I think, I'm just guessing that, that a lot of people who are adopted, uh, that's why I, I carry it to themselves. That's what I, we call, I call us an invisible community. 
when you go out in public, you go to a coffee shop, you go in the grocery store, you're driving around with other cars. You don't know who's you don't you have no idea who's who's been adopted or not any more than you know who suffered an early childhood trauma. So my guess is that's that that we uh, if uh, I've heard this from other adoptees, like, hey, I got a good I was adopted and my parents were were really good. My new parents were really good. So thank you very much. Why do I care? I mean, what what why would I be curious about anything else? I lucked out. Others, it's more of a, I think it's the, not only curiosity, but if you have, although I did, I think for the most part by myself, but um, when you, books like this, other opportunities for the community to get together, a pot, not only this podcast, but other uh, organizations that are have their own sort of podcasts and community discussions, that's when I think people, when they begin to talk, begin to ask questions, find out what your experience is compared to my experience, or be able to offer you advice, or you give me your advice. That I think that begins to stir the pot. That's when the uh, I think the curiosity, the need to know, and also the frustration with a lot of laws that prohibit finding, you know, opening sealed records. That also, but there's a, that's why I think community conversation is good because there are tricks to the trade. There are, you know, people who haven't done twenty three me or Ancestry.com or use a genealogical society or paid for a private um, organization to help you in the search. Uh, you know, if you're if you're coming into new, you just don't sort of know about much of that until somebody actually can begin to tell you. It's a very loosely coupled. I'm using organizational language right about being loosely coupled, but it's a very loosely coupled uh, uh, network of organizations, individuals that comprise this larger uh, 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 adoption community. But I, I just think it's, it's so diffuse that sometimes we don't know one end from the other. I know there's a lot. There's a large uh, 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 attorneys uh, organizations for attorneys that deal with just with adoption. I mean, I didn't know about that. Even as a therapist, I just ran into it through a client. I had no idea that it was out there. I mean, I never thought about it. Now I, it seems obvious. So we get initiated where, when and where we are. And uh, if we're lucky, uh, we have uh, those kind of resources. And hopefully, if I've done my job at all, that for those who run into the book, we'll hide consolation the fact that that uh, you're not you're not alone in feeling <laughs> alone or what i call in the book that inner orphan that part that's the unsettledness the the difficulty of maintaining relationships holding a job living in one place not everybody suffers from that but those are some of the telltale uh, behaviors hmm. that, that indicate the trauma that still uh, can still have its way in uh, influencing the, the outer part of your life because you talk, I mean, you, you articulate some of this stuff in fantastically well in your writing as well. And you talk about um, uh, there is little commonality or of personality or life pattern amongst adoptees. We are a diverse yet invisible community. We live in plain sight, but our adopted status is usually unseen by others. It's my belief, however, that adoptees share a fundamental core experience of separation. Then you go on, and it's a fantastically... Mm -hmm. It's, it kind of just hits it right on the nose, really, about that, this thing that's happening unseen to the world around. Yeah, right. It does. And that's, uh, you know, once when you're, if this is new to people, which I have to think that it is for some people, that, uh, that like I say, it can offer some sort of reassurance that I, I'm not alone. Uh, that was, what, the adoption community was my primary audience, but not my only audience. Uh, because in, in, as we talk about adoption, also in the book, and in my own way of putting it too, 
today is that that can include a lot of different uh, people and instances. That can include growing up with a family who, who, who's, if you're raised by a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle, uh, or that you discover much later in life, the woman who you thought was your mother was not your mother at all. It turned out your older sister was your mother and no one told you about mm. it. Uh, or I've all these I call the big surprise stories. I've heard many of these. I'm sure I'm going to hear many more where there was a guy who was at, uh, of course, I have a, uh, my first chapter is about my high school reunion where uh, somebody was spraying something on me, not, not about my adoption, but um, uh, a guy who was, I think was in the 30th class reunion. And one of his classmates who he'd known for a long time came over and said, you know, I've been dying to ask you all these years, like, what's it like being adopted? He had no clue he was adopted. None. And you can, and you hear these these shocking mm. revelations, or sometimes that can, as I say, come through things like Ancestry.com and and uh, like my my uh, half sisters. I mean, there was some suspicion of something else that my birth father had been involved with before, but still, when you kind of here's irrefutable proof, you have a half brother, and it's me. <laughs> that can come as a pretty big shock, and I, I yeah. thoroughly appreciate what that is like. I, I mean, I, that was the sense I had in, in communicating with them. Uh, and I was I was equally shocked that I actually, after all these years, caught up with him. But uh, yeah, can I ask then? Um, perhaps, but as a society, our views on adoption have changed, and I, I know that there's comparative move, movements in the US to the UK where adoptees are kind of saying, actually, we don't agree with adoption. We think that it's a it's a sledgehammer to crack a walnut. Oftentimes, it's a it's social engineering. It's you know, it's erasure of identity. Um, where do you stand on that? And I'm I'm asking that in terms of in the knowledge that you are also an adoptive parent. So how can you reconcile all of that? Or do you where do well, you sit there? You know, I, I confess it's not something I, I'm. I know there are different disparate groups out there that have raised objections of one kind or another around adoption. Sometimes that. There's a group called Bastard Nation, I think, that's that's opposed to yep. any state thing. But that's a, that's for if you don't if you don't open all the records, then you you know you're you're guilty of this charge for being part of the problem. Uh, but I yeah I think there are also religious issues that there have been fluctuations within certain uh, religious groups that have got run hot and cold about the adoption and so forth. Um, uh, I think one of the things that's hot right now, well, it was just the New York Times just two days ago, was the, the whole issue about sperm donors and, yeah. and some of the very mixed feelings about those. In fact, one of the most influential books uh, to me was Danny Shapiro's book, who was already a writer, called Inheritance, about her discovery that her father wasn't her father after her, wasn't her birth father. It was actually a sperm donor, and she you know, tracked him down. I, I'm convinced he lives here in the Seattle area, but I think he lives in Portland. But um, anyway, um, so that's a controversial issue. The other one I think has to do with the LGBTQ community. They have a whole set of issues to them. And I think also within the both both uh, non-white communities, including the indigenous communities in Canada and uh, the United States, uh, among those, uh, it's a big deal. There's a woman named Angela Tucker who here from Seattle who wrote a book called uh, um, You Should Be Grateful, meaning you're black, you got raised by white parents, you should be grateful. You know, and and as free chronicles, among other things, that you actually it's much less expensive to buy a child yeah. of color than it is a white child. That conferring that, so 
those issues, or, or the most recently this fall, uh, the singer Buffy St. Bravis, who I think was raised in a, in a, by a white family, although she was an indigenous tribe, from, I think from Manitoba, um, and being challenged that she wasn't really indigenous. You're, you're trying to appropriate us, although if you see a picture, you've got to, she is definitely not from Sweden. I mean, she looks as indigenous as one can be, but the, you know, within within that too, within even within the, you know, uh, you know the black community, uh, you know that you're not you know you're not black enough, or in local tribes around here, you have to be able to verify that you're, you know, on paper through blood tests that you're a certain percentage of, of that tribe to not only belong to the tribe but to also be the beneficiary of financial you know benefits that come along with that. So very complicated stuff. It can be very divisive. Um, and they're all important. They're all, but it, it comes down still to the issue in, in Buffy St. Marie's case. And uh, later she was kind of, I'll call readopted or taken back in by the lo- local uh, tribe and reconfirmed and re- reconnected her with her, her tribal uh, indigenous roots, which were very important to her. I'm sure the tribe as well, so, but, but that kind of, uh, that that's somebody who's lucky uh, the displacement of, of indigenous uh, peoples in, in North America and run rife and including uh, Indian boarding schools that here in this country and in Canada mm-hmm. and all the atrocities that happened there. Not only, of course, the, the deaths and untold numbers of killed or died or vanished in these schools, uh, but also I mean, the fact that they, they, they were in fact so whitewashed that they, they weren't able to go back into their own culture. I mean, in, yeah. in the state of Maine and, and parts of Quebec, there's a number of those tribes that are part of a larger nation there. And those kids who got taken away to the schools by white social workers were, were so psychologically damaged that they they could not go back. They would not let themselves be exposed to the fact they had been white for so long and now were potentially going to be reclaimed by their tribe. And they some, some could not handle it. It's really... It's a double tragedy. So you can but see how, as you begin to talk yeah. about these things, how these issues just expand, right? But yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think that you can't get your arms around them because they they reflect different society, different time. But in the crux of all that, you still got the a child being taken or a child being given up and then transplanted into a new community, even if they're both right. white families and you know the culture, right. all that cultural stuff. So. It, I'm not trying to trip you up or trying to kind of, I'm not looking for any controversy, but where do you stand in terms of adoption? Because I know that I speak to a lot of adoptees who go, well, some some absolutely vehemently oh, against uh, it and some well, have, see it as a necessary uh, uh, evil. Yeah, I, uh, uh, well, there's no question in my mind that in, I'm going to say most cases, not all, that whatever reason, precipitating factors that led a, a, a woman, young woman to, give her child up must have in her mind or possibly her family's mind, but her mind, something onerous enough to say, I can't provide for this kid. This kid will do better elsewhere. And generally by and large, I'd say, I'm going to guess that mostly has been true with some, you know, contradiction. Yeah. Yeah. Now that said, uh, what I, in terms of adoption, what I don't agree with, I, I, I'm not a fan of open adoption. Now I'm saying this as much as a as a as an adoptee as I am a psychotherapist. I think this this gets at partly the issue of identity. Adults who I think the couples or one or two on the adopted the the, the birth parent or, or the adopted parent 
who enter into a you know, open adoption, despite all the philosophy and so forth, there's a lot of this sense of like we're each going to get our our piece of the pie. I get so much of the kid, you get so much of the kid, and we're going to call that open. It's not unlike custody arrangements in divorce. You know, we okay, you get them during the week, and I get them on the weekends, or it's every other week, and you know, and so uh, you're the child is put in this in this kind of the like a tennis ball going back and forth, back and forth. And I think, I think, uh, particularly around who the who am I question, it takes some maturity. I think probably not until maybe age eighteen. Then I think it's appropriate to open up records for kids. And then if they want to find their birth parents or not, or uh, in a parallel way, whether the birth parent wants to be found, some birth parents do not want to be found again, and uh, and sometimes for really good reason. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a client who's. Uh, uh, unquestionably, after I've seen pictures of of what he knew where he came from in South America, um, almost fifty years ago, and was suspected of his birth parent, I think was suspected of being a major uh, kingpin in a drug cartel, a well-known name. And um, when I saw this well-known name's person on Wikipedia, and I looked at my client, go, "Oh my God, you're like identical. I mean, you are identical to this, to this guy." And whether he was actually the father or closely related father, I don't know. But you realize there were reasons as he found his Lord caught up to him that it was not safe for him to be born. His mother was told he had died and she was skirted out of town. And he was was the way the United States adopted because their lives were in danger had this uh, criminal uh, didn't have good reason not to have him found. He probably mm-hmm. married his own kids and it was just not going to in a wash. So. For some people, you know, uh, killing a birth child uh, would not be uh, out of the question. So that raises, I'm, I'm taking this a little far afield, but I think there are complications in the search process. Generally, for most people, the accessibility and appropriate age to records, I think, is the, it should be almost a guaranteed right in the adoption process. And I think that's where uh, the birth parent, or excuse me, the adopted parent, really has to have a pretty strong ego. And to be able to say, hold both to be true. Hold both that your child loves you and your child also has a need to reconnect with their natural origin, for better or worse. If you can, ha- if you can withstand that and understand it, it makes, me, makes you an incredible, <laughs> incredible person, number one, an incredible parent. But that's the kind of the holding some of the ambiguities and the mysteries are so important psychologically uh, for a child growing up. But to, as I say, adoption done well gives a f- solid foundation for a child to go through the, the appropriate developmental stages without a lot of confusion. I can't imagine being 14 years old, let's say 13, when I said to my mother, by my curiosity, suddenly my birth mother at that time would have come into and say, oh, by the way, I'm your birth mother. Uh, would have been, uh, I can't mm-hmm. imagine I would not have been able to know what to do with that. So tell me, how has your book been received? Well, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I've been, I've, I've gone to a book festival too. I've, I've done some speaking engagements. I'm going uh, down to Stanford uh, University and the bookstore there and uh, bringing copies of the book. I've been in a lot of other podcasts, got a lot of feedback. I've had other uh, articles that I've, I've written for various online magazines. But I think on the person-to-person level, um, you know, now I'm now I'm flattering myself. Of course, the people who wanted to say something crappy wouldn't say anything to me at all, probably. <laughs> but most have said that they found it 
pretty riveting, and it, it was is an easy read. Yeah, it, it flows well, I think. And um, uh, anybody who's remotely my age, also, you kind of, oh yeah, I remember that. I remember that this was some, something similar in my life. So I, but I think that that if I think that the um, in the adoption world, those who who are either themselves adopted or part of the community or know others as well, it was it was it did what I hoped it would do, which is kind of illuminate, kind of shine a light on it. And in that regard, I'm I'm complimented by whatever comes my way that like, oh, I understand this better, that eternal life part. I think that's the, you know, when you're in the business of being a psychotherapist or just me in general, I'm totally dialed into people's internal lives or my own included, but I've realized not everybody is. So I think that the one I can do that to kind of raise consciousness about the inner workings of, of the psyche or the soul on a soul level. Because I think that's what, uh, when uh, Carl Jung, as I mentioned in the book, uh, uh, wrote Memories, Dreams, and Reflections at age 83, it was, a, it was a look back at his internal life. That's why he calls it myth-making, uh, what he did. And uh, in a, not that I'm Carl Jung, but I think that that, uh, that was a model for me to, to try to look back, not just at the other, the, all the you know, detective work and all that stuff, which is interesting, but to take you on the ride of my own inner journey. And well, I think, I think I've been. No, and I think I, I, I would really encourage people to read it because I think it's, it's fascinating. And you, you pose lots of questions in terms of, like you said, there's, like you said, there's two levels. There's the practical, physical, how did you do that sort of journey? But there's also mm -hmm. this, this kind of developing sense of self and who you are making, trying to make sense of that trying to ask questions and make sense of yeah. questions. So yeah. what we'll do is we'll put the, um, we'll put links to it in the show notes so people can get access to that. And, and Stephen, yeah. I want to thank you so much for coming on. You've been so open and generous with your time and I wish you oh. well with your book. Thank you so much. It's been great to spend time with you. I, I enjoyed this a lot. <laughs>